morning. Um, Anna and I actually, when we left here, we moved to Kentucky and Grace Fullerton actually didn't exist. So it's been neat to come back and see what the Lord's done here, see familiar faces and new ones. I've actually never been to the second service here, so that's kind of fun to see a new group of people. Um, again, some of whom I've met before. But I want to tell you a story this morning that you probably won't believe, but the last Japanese soldier to surrender after World War II surrendered in 1974. Now, for those of you who aren't history buffs, World War II actually ended when Japan surrendered in 1945, which means this man continued fighting for 29 more years. So a comment like this obviously asks for a little bit of an explanation. So let me tell you a little bit about this man. His name is Haru Onoda. He was trained in guerrilla warfare, and he was taken to an island in the Philippines in December of 1944. The Allies then took the island in February of 1945, so just two months later. But he and the remaining soldiers split up into groups of three to four soldiers, and they headed into the jungle. Many of these groups were killed off fairly early on, but Onoda's group survived, and they rationed their supplies, and they lived off coconuts, bananas, and other food while conducting raids on enemy soldiers. In October of 1945, just a reminder, the war actually ended in August of 1945, so a few months later, they continued to harass local farmers by killing off their livestock, typically for food. So the locals left leaflets that said the war had ended in August. The remaining cells got together and discussed this because many of them had, got, had found these leaflets, but they assumed it was allied propaganda because they thought there was no way Japan could have lost the war just eight months after they were stationed there. Now, it can be tempting to think that they were foolish, but you also have to remember they had no knowledge of the atomic bombs dropped on Hiroshima or Nagasaki because they were in the jungle. So it's a little bit understandable that they could think this. But eventually, the local islanders became tired of being shot at and raided. So what they did, they had leaflets dropped from B-17s, newspaper clippings, delegates from Japan came into the jungle and spoke on loudspeakers, indicating that the war was over. And even search parties came, but they couldn't find Onoda and they couldn't find some of these other men because you have to remember they'd been hiding in the jungle for years at this point. But in every case, after they'd gotten these newspaper clippings, these leaflets, this, the remaining cells could not believe the war was over because all the newspaper clippings and leaflets had said Japan had lost the war. And that was something they simply couldn't fathom. If Japan had won, they would come back and get them and find them and bring, that, bring them back home. And Japan couldn't lose, so the war must still be going on, or at least that's what their thought process was. Eventually, over the years, Onoda was the only one who remained from the cell. So some of the men had surrendered. Some of them, you know, you get tired of being in the jungle for 10 years. Uh, some of them had also died in raiding some of these locals. So Onoda was the last one to survive. Eventually, he was found by a college student, surprisingly, and he, 
he wouldn't believe, this was a Japanese college student actually, and he wouldn't believe that the war was over unless his commanding officer told him that. So his commanding officer, who had long since retired from the military and was working in a bookstore, came back to the Philippines. Yeah, he found Onoda and told him that Japan had lost the war. And so on March 10th of 1974, Onoda surrendered to the Philippine president. Now we might look at this as foolish, which in some ways it, it, it was and it is. And there's a lot of cultural and some other sociological reasons for Onoda to keep fighting. But he continued to fight ultimately because he missed the significance of the Japanese surrender. He missed the importance of the day Japan had surrendered because of preconceived notions that he had and wrong expectations that he had. He couldn't fathom that Japan had lost the war, so he missed the significance of the day of surrender and he kept fighting. So I wanna talk this morning about another group of people who missed the significance of an even more fateful day. They too missed it because of preconceived notions they had or wrong expectations. And before we, we talk about uh, this group of people more, I want to look at an Old Testament text that they misunderstood and how Jesus actually fulfilled this text in an unexpected way. So before we turn to that passage, I want to just pause uh, one more time and pray for our time as we open the word. Lord, we are thankful for Palm Sunday and for this yearly reminder of your work on our behalf. But Lord, I know that I can, and I imagine many here can become familiar with today and then it can lose its significance. And so I pray that as we open your word, that your word would fall afresh on our hearts, that your spirit would open our hearts to, to hear and to see what you have to say to us this morning. So I pray that you would use these words that I have and use this time in your word to, to bring us to a greater understanding of this time again. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So I want us to turn to Psalm 118, which you can see in your bulletin as our text. And while you're turning there, I just wanna give you a little bit of a context for what we're about to read. So Psalm 118 speaks of an Israelite king returning from battle where he's almost defeated, but he had been delivered by God. He's approaching the temple in Jerusalem, and the priests and the people are on, at the courts of the temple awaiting his arrival. So it's this processional psalm where the king is arriving back, and, um, and the psalm begins outside the gates of the temple, and it continues inside. So there's some responsiveness as the king repeats different words that the people and the priests would respond with. So we're going to just read a few verses, then I'm going to pause and talk about them a little bit. So we won't read the whole text right from the outset, but we'll start in verses one through four. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say his steadfast love endures forever. So the psalm begins with an invitation of the people and the priests to praise God. But then it shifts to the king speaking and giving testimony for how God delivered him. Verse 5, out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. 
What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. So the psalmist talks about this distress that he faces in verse 5, but he, he isn't specific at this point about what it is. He simply says that God delivered him, and when God answered his cry for deliverance, it demonstrates to him of God's trustworthiness. And it showed him that if God is on his side, he doesn't need to fear. The question in verse six, what can man do to me? Sometimes can seem odd to us on its face, right? Because when you think about it, man can do a lot to us and a lot of unpleasant things to us actually. But the whole point of the comparison at least is that God is trustworthy and so able to help us that we don't need to fear what man can do to us. The psalm continues with the king giving an account of what specifically he faced in verse 10. The nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. So what's going on here is the nations or Israel's enemies surrounded the king in this battle. And it was a desperate situation. He says they surrounded him on every side. They surrounded him like bees. So it seemed hopeless. But when God intervened, he defeated them easily. So the expression here, it says they went out like a fire among thorns means that once God intervened, it ended quickly. So it's the idea of like throwing a match on dry grass. It burned quickly. And so even though it seemed hopeless from the king's perspective when God intervened, again, his enemies were defeated easily. Verses 14 through 18 are another praise from God, which we won't read for time's sake. So we'll jump down to verse 19. And what's going on here in terms of the procession, the king has now arrived at the temple and he says this, "'Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord.'" So then now in verse 20, he's walking through the temple gate and he says, this is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. He then thanks God for delivering him when he says, I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. Now salvation here isn't how we often think of salvation in terms of salvation from sin. Uh, Salvation just means you're saved from something or delivered from something. And in the context of Psalm 118, he's delivered from his enemies. He's saved from, from death at the hand of his enemies in battle. He continues in verse 22, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So here the king is speaking about himself. He is the stone that the builders rejected. So his, the the builders reject the uh, the stone that the builders reject is the king being rejected by his enemies, by those nations that were seeking to defeat him in battle. But he was not cast off by God. He was triumphant over them. He was vindicated by him. He continues his praise of God in verse 23. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. 
Now, verse 24 is, is familiar verses to many of us. They're a song that we might have sang as children or that we teach to our children about the new day that God has given us, that his mercies are new every morning and we have another opportunity at life and a new day that God has made. But actually in the context of the psalm, it's not talking about a new day God had made. The day is the day of salvation, the day that the king was delivered from his enemies. So that's the day that he's speaking of, the day God saved him from his enemies. Now the psalm closes with praise by the people and by the priests in verse 25. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. So the king is the one who's coming in the name of the Lord. Earlier in the psalm, he said that in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. So when the priests and the people are giving this blessing on the one coming in the name of the Lord, it's the king that they're speaking about. And they continue their praise in verse 27. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. So Psalm 118, just to summarize, is a psalm about a king returning from battle where his enemies almost defeated him. He praises God for the day of his deliverance from his enemies. The king was the stone the builders rejected, and the nations were the ones that had rejected him. He almost died, but God delivered him, saved him from his enemies. And so the psalm praises God for the day of salvation and deliverance in battle. But when we turn to Matthew 21, if you want to flip there, we see Jesus entering Jerusalem to familiar words. So, This is a typical passage we read on Palm Sunday. It's called the triumphal entry where Jesus is entering Jerusalem in what we now know will be his last week of his life. Kenny read earlier from John and similar account in Matthew. Verse one. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says to you, you shall say to, if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt the foal of a beast of burden." The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. So the the word spoken by the prophet here in verse 5 is actually from Zechariah 9, and Jesus is fulfilling it. Zechariah 9 speaks of the king, the Messiah, returning to Jerusalem. And so Jesus is fulfilling this prophecy. He is the king. He is the Messiah that is returning to Jerusalem. The crowd, though, sees another Old Testament passage at play here as well in verse 8. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. 
So the crowd repeats Hosanna, which just means save us, which is in Psalm 118, where the people cry, save us to the king. And they also hail Jesus, the crowd hails Jesus as the king from Psalm 118 when they repeat the words, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So by quoting Psalm 118, the question is, what did the crowd understand about Jesus? Now, the one who comes in the name of the Lord, as we remember in Psalm 118, is the king returning from battle after he had triumphed over his enemies. And the people are asking Jesus to save them, to deliver them from something. The nations in Psalm 118 are Israel's enemies. But in Jesus's day, it's the Romans who are ruling over Israel and who are Israel's enemies. So the crowd is asking and expecting Jesus to deliver them from the Romans. They want a military and they want a political victory. But for one who's been reading the Gospel of Matthew, we know that that's not why Jesus came. At the very beginning of his Gospel, in Matthew 1.21, the angel comes to Mary and Joseph, tells them that they, Mary will give birth to a son and that they are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So from the very beginning of the Gospel, we, we know and we see that Jesus' purpose is to deliver his people from their sins. So though the crowd is right in hailing Jesus as king, they misunderstand why he came. They misunderstand that the day of salvation was at hand. The day of deliverance has come, but it's not deliverance from Rome. It's deliverance from their greater enemy, their true enemy, which is sin. Jesus indeed has come to bring salvation and deliverance, but not in the way the people expected. Jesus was expected to be their deliverer from their Roman overlords. But ironically, unlike the king in Psalm 118, Jesus is headed toward his death, not delivered from death. And he's headed toward his death in order to accomplish salvation for his people. So Jesus will not be saved from his enemies. He will actually be delivered into their hands, but he's delivered into their hands so that he can bring salvation to the people. As one commentator says, the people are calling out divine blessings on their expected deliverer, but they will be delivered by the suffering servant rather than a conquering king. So because they misunderstood the meaning of the day, they misunderstood and would ultimately reject Jesus, the Messiah and their king. Jesus tells a parable in verses 33 through 41 that we won't read, but it's a parable about how the Jewish people will reject him. So it talks about how God sent his servants, which are the prophets, and the people rejected them. And then God sends his son, and the people reject him as well. And in verse 42, Jesus quotes Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So here Jesus identifies himself as the stone that the builders rejected. But in Psalm 118, the nations are the ones who reject the king. But when Jesus quotes it, he's quoting it to his own people, the people of Israel who will reject him. And so, and we know this because four days later, after he enters Jerusalem, he's arrested and then he's crucified. So the people in Jesus's day understood that it was a day of salvation, but it was not salvation from Rome. It was salvation from their sins. And their misunderstanding of the day meant their rejection of Jesus. They missed that their deliverer had in fact arrived. 
the one long awaited to deliver them from their real enemy. And because they misunderstood, they missed and they rejected Jesus. So what does this mean for us today? First, I would ask, do we understand what day it is? The people in Jesus' day misunderstood what Jesus came to deliver them from. It was not a deliverance from Rome. It was deliverance from their sin. And we too can misunderstand and have wrong expectations about what Jesus delivers us from now and what he will deliver us from in the future. So I want to talk first about what Jesus has delivered us from now. Jesus has delivered us now from the penalty of sin. And many of you know, our sin separates us from a relationship with God. And Jesus lived the perfect life. And in his death, he took on the punishment that we deserved so that we can have a right relationship with God and not bear the penalty of an eternity apart from God. And not just the penalty of an eternity apart from God, but we can have a relationship with God right now and not have the penalty of separation from him now in this life. God no longer sees us as guilty in his eyes, but when we repent and place our faith in Christ, God declares us not guilty, which enables us to rightly relate with him. So if you're here and you don't know Christ, I'd say to you, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to commit your life to him. But maybe you're here and you're not quite certain who Jesus is. You have questions. You aren't quite ready to commit to him. I would just say, I'm glad you're here. I I know it can be awkward to come into a place that you don't know anyone and you're singing songs that you aren't familiar with. And so I'm glad you've come. And I would encourage you to keep coming, keep journeying with us, keep looking at who Jesus is and what he says about himself. But for others of you here, you know and you believe that Jesus has delivered you from the penalty of sin. And I would say the second thing Jesus delivers us from now is the power of sin. Jesus' resurrection means that the new creation has begun, the new creation where sin no longer reigns. And so by the power of the Spirit, we can say no to sin and live righteous lives. It means you don't have to respond in the same sinful ways that you always have. It means you can have self-control rather than respond with the same cutting remarks to those who insult you. It means you can forgive rather than hold grudges against those who have hurt you. It means you can resist and not give in to the temptation of pornography. It means you can have rest and peace and not let anxious thoughts control you. Jesus has broken the power of sin and delivered us from it. For some of us, I know for myself at times, it's familiar. We know that. And sometimes when we're honest, it can seem seem kind of hollow. You know, we've kind of been there, done that. We've heard this before. But it is something I want to say that we need to pause and marvel at, that we were once in bondage and we had no hope apart from Christ and we had no choice of saying yes to God and no to sin. But Jesus has broken that through the power of his blood that we who were once far off have now been brought near. Another way as I've thought about this that, that I hope is helpful is I think I've seen in my family, and I'm sure many of you see in your family, these sinful patterns. Uh, maybe you saw your grandfather had struggle with anger and your father have the similar struggles and you see that in yourself. Or you see one of your grandparents was a people pleaser and was always living for the approval of others. And you see 
a parent struggle with that same sin as well, and you struggle with that. And I think at times we can feel discouraged and think that there's no way we can change, that we're destined, we're doomed to continue repeating those same sinful patterns in our lives. But Jesus breaking the power of sin means that we're not destined and, or doomed to follow the sins of our parents or grandparents, that we can end and break those sinful patterns and those cycles. But we can still misunderstand and have wrong expectations about what Jesus delivers us from now. We may know he delivers us from the penalty and the power of sin, but we can think that he's going to deliver us from things now that actually await his, his complete triumph in, uh, in the future. And there are three things specifically I want to look at that, that we sometimes expect Jesus to deliver us from now that, that await his future triumph. And those are difficulty, the struggle with sin, and suffering. So I want to first talk about difficulty We can assume that if God calls us to something specific, he will open every door. God will remove every obstacle and the road will be easy. We think that there should be no waiting. There should be clear answers and that we should have quick success. Essentially, we're expecting that God will remove difficulty from our lives. Now we can all, I think we all here would probably mentally affirm that life is difficult and we should expect life to be hard. But how do we respond in difficulty of life? How do we respond when we encounter financial struggles or relationship and marital issues or uncertainty about the future or family issues? When we encounter these, we can question God and become discouraged. Now, on the one hand, I want to make it clear that it's okay to wrestle with God in prayer and to that difficulty isn't easy. It's by definition, it's difficult. And so it's okay for you to wrestle with God in prayer. I think though, when we encounter difficulty, it, it shows us that we have these expectations that we shouldn't have, that it shouldn't be there. And so we can become discouraged in this. We think that if God leads us in a direction, we should have immediate success. But God leading us in a direction often means being asked to wait and it means encountering hardships. This doesn't mean that we're completely passive, but it does mean that as we work and pray that we have an attitude of patience and hope. An example of this that I I was thinking about in my life where I I didn't do this well, which I think sometimes can be more helpful where I failed at this, but Kenny had referred early in the service about a training that Anna and I had at our missions agency this summer that we were with Ty and Heather at. And Anna and I had been struggling for the last few years trying to figure out where the Lord would have us to serve overseas. And it wasn't easy at the time. We were kind of wrestling with it. And then we, we go to this training, and as we go around and introduce ourselves, there were 13 other couples And every other couple except for us knew where they were going, what country they were going to be serving in. And for us, that was a little bit awkward. No one made us feel this way, but it was a little bit awkward. Just we felt that everyone else is saying their name, what ministry they're doing, what country they're going to. And then, you know, I'm saying, hi, my name's Adam, and I have no idea where exactly I'm going to be going. And we hadn't been passive, so I want to make that clear. We had visited several locations. I had written hundreds of emails. I had made dozens of phone calls and talking with different locations. 
Yet there we were without a clear ministry location. And it was disheartening and it was, it was really frustrating. There were a lot of tears shed over the few weeks we were there. There was just a lot of anger that, that I felt. And I questioned while we were there whether God was truly leading us. Ultimately, I expected that God would make, make things clear and that we wouldn't have to wait because we had been praying and looking into things for, at that time, about three years. So we were expecting it to be a little more clear at that point, but we did have to wait. So we had waited about three to four years. And then even after that training, we waited seven more months. And which in the grand scheme of my life, seven months isn't that long. But by the time four years rolling around, it seems like seven more months was a really long time. And I mean, this is something that just, that God has just, uh, a prayer that God has just answered. But God used that time of waiting in our lives. He refined our vision of what we wanted to do and what we believe he had called us to. But probably more importantly, he refined us as he inclined our hearts to continue seeking him. God doesn't promise to remove difficulty in this life. God uses difficulties and trials to lead us to him, to refine our character, and to sometimes demonstrate areas that we're placing our trust in instead of him. Second, I want us to look at, at sin. We might know that Jesus delivers us from the power of sin, but we might expect him to deliver us entirely from sin and be able to completely triumph over certain sins in this life. So Jesus, I said before, he's broken the power of sin and, and we can break sinful patterns and, and generational sins, so to speak. But we can think that God will allow us to sometimes triumph over specific habitual sins we see. So I'm sure most of us are aware in here of, of habitual sins we have, ones that we continue to struggle with. And we might ask ourselves, why am I still struggling with this? I've been working on it. I've been with the help of the Lord. I've been praying about it. I'm aware of it. But I think we expect Jesus to transform us overnight or to transform us quickly. I mean, many of us have heard stories where God does that, where people with addictions or alcoholism are delivered and, and transformed in a moment. And, and I want to affirm that God clearly can, and he does do that. In my life, I've noticed that that hasn't usually been the case. There's often been a slow, painful obedience, which over time weakens temptation's power. I have to choose obedience and flee to Jesus time after time until the sin loses its attraction. But because we may not overcome a certain sin immediately or because it keeps coming up over and over we may give up because of our impatience and imagine that this must be incurable because it hasn't gone away yet. But it means that we need to continue to respond by the power of the Spirit with repentance, with vigilance, looking at the motives behind the sin or secondary issues that might feed these habitual sins. And we must lean on God daily, even moment by moment in temptation. And you can tell whether impatience is ruling your spiritual life by how much anger or frustration you harbor. And I think anger and frustration both at God and yourself, I just think of how harsh we can be to ourselves, how judgmental, and how we can beat ourselves up when we continue to see the same sin over and over again in our lives. I think how often I do that. 
And often that anger and that frustration can, can go to the Lord as well. And Lord, why am I still struggling with this? Why haven't you delivered me from this? So I think gauging how much anger and frustration we have over sin in our lives and habitual sin specifically is helpful to see what our expectations of God are in this. Of course, I want to add kind of the flip side. It's possible to be too patient about our spiritual growth. So one ancient Christian writer says this, some, however, are so patient about their desire for advancement that God would prefer to see them a little less so. So there is a flip side to this, but Jesus doesn't promise to deliver us quickly from sin, from habitual sins. He can, and he has before, but often he uses slower means to drive us to depend and trust him daily. The third area I wanna look at is suffering. We can expect to avoid suffering. And I just wanna make a quick difference here between difficulty and suffering, although there's a lot of overlap. So, but difficulty, I'm thinking of the day-to-day hardships that we face. Genesis three talks about how work will be toilsome and it will be difficult. Things that just we encounter on a day-to-day basis. Suffering, though, I'm looking at is sin that's done to us, sin that's committed against us, or hardships we face because we live in a broken world. So people have cancer, we have painful relationships, there's natural disasters that happen, things that are a little more out of the ordinary. We expect, I think, a triumph that the Bible says won't occur until Jesus returns. And we want glory and we want triumph apart from the cross. We want success apart from suffering. We want a wonderful marriage without having to die to ourselves and give up our own desires. And we don't want to walk through a struggle with sin or through difficulty. And we question Jesus when we encounter suffering, wonder what we've done to deserve it, and ask Jesus why he hasn't healed us of something yet. But I think our series in 1 Peter that we've been going through is helpful in this because 1 Peter actually tells us we should expect to encounter suffering. Jesus was glorified through his suffering on the cross. And 1 Peter tells us we are joined to Jesus, who's the cornerstone. And if we're joined with him, we should have similar experiences as him. So in a few weeks, we'll we'll talk about 1 Peter 2.21. And that tells us that Jesus suffered and we should expect to suffer as well. God's power is perfected in our weakness, as 2 Corinthians 12 says. So as we suffer, as we encounter difficulty, God's power is made more clear in that. Suffering and difficulty drive us to the end of ourselves and to God. Jesus promises to deliver us from the penalty of sin and the power of sin, but he doesn't promise to deliver us from the presence of sin until he returns again. Jesus already paid the penalty and defeated sin at the cross, and in his resurrection begins the new creation. And that new creation is is something we begin to experience now, but it's not something we will experience until Jesus returns again. And so, again, Jesus delivers us from some, some things now, but there are things that he delivers us from when he returns in the future. And so that's a day that we can look forward to And that's a day where there will be no more sin. I don't know if you're like me, but thinking of a day where I will never have a sinful thought is hard to imagine. 
Right? I just think of how harsh I can be toward me, other people, even just in my head. And that there's going to be a day where I will not struggle with that anymore. It's hard to imagine. But Jesus will bring that. There will be no more quick, hurtful jabs, no more arguments with friends or with my wife. There's no more anger. I won't be living to please other people. There will be no more tears. Be no more watching a loved one die. I remember after I graduated college, I interned at a church in uh, the same town where my grandparents lived, and my, my grandfather had pretty advanced stage cancer and was in hospice care at that time. And I remember watching him basically waste away, and that was hard. I would go visit him every day and sit by his bed and just watch him diminish in many ways physically. And here's a man that I loved and was close with, and, and it was hard. Uh, I mean, he's a believer, so there's hope, but it, it's, it's hard to watch the effects of a broken world. But there will be a day where we no more have to see things like that. There will be no more pain of watching a child stray away from the Lord. It's as Tolkien says, a day where everything sad becomes untrue. And finally, we will see Jesus face to face in that day. And as the words of Isaiah say, we too can say, behold our God who we have waited for. We will see him face to face who we have believed and put our trust in and speak to and pray to, but we will finally behold him face to face. So here are a few questions I want to give us to reflect on as we go from here. Where do you experience disappointment and discontentment? I think answering this question, these questions, or this question helps us to see where Jesus is not doing what we expected him to do. So it helps surface areas that we think he should be doing something that he might not be. How do you respond to habitual sin? Have you become complacent, angry? Uh, have you become impatient? Where have you experienced suffering and difficulty? And how have you responded to it? The people on Palm Sunday missed the day of salvation that Jesus accomplished because they were expecting something else from Jesus. So where are you missing Jesus's work in your life because you're expecting something else from him? Jesus has delivered us from the penalty of sin now. He has broken the power of sin and he is delivering us from the power of sin. And one day... Not yet, but one day he will deliver us from the presence of sin. So I want to give you guys a few minutes. One thing I like um, that's nice about Fullerton is we have a little more time in our service. So I want to give you a few minutes to, to pray, maybe reflect on these questions, or just reflect on expectations you have of Jesus um, that he may not be fulfilling, and there are things that he hasn't promised to fulfill. So I want to give you time to spend with the Lord I'll give you a few minutes, and then after a few minutes, I'll close our time in prayer. Lord, it's so easy for me to look at the crowd who hailed your arrival and think, how could they miss you? How could they not understand? But then when I look at my own heart and my own life, I think of how many ways I expect things from you that you haven't promised me. 
and how in the midst of difficulty and suffering, it's so easy for me to question you and, and be angry and wonder why I'm experiencing those things. Lord, I pray for me and I pray for my brothers and sisters here that as we do encounter difficulty, as we encounter suffering, as we experience habitual sin, that you would remind us of your presence with us, that you would remind us that you're working your good in those things, you're, you're revealing things in our heart, and you're help shaping us more to be more like your son. Lord, on my best days, I know and I want. And so, Lord, I pray for us here that we would, you would give us wisdom, that your spirit would give us insight into our hearts and see things, specific things in our lives that we want from you and that we're expecting from you that you haven't promised. Pray that as many go to grace groups tonight, that those would be fruitful conversations as well. So Lord, we are thankful that you will ultimately deliver us from difficulty and sin and suffering in the future. And we look forward to that day. And we pray this in your name. Amen.